0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Wang Yu the Frederick S. Danziger Associate Professor of Government at Harvard University. Today we'll be discussing the connection between state capacity in imperial China and modern day authoritarian resiliency. Yuval, thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Thanks, Jude. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: So I wanted to start by asking a question about your intellectual biography. Looking at the work you did when you were doing your PhD and the work you're continuing to do, you you clearly have a very strong interest in this question of of state building, state capacity, state resiliency. So how did you come to be focused on this topic as the core of your, your academic work, and, and as a follow-up, what are the questions or the outstanding intellectual research questions that are that are driving your work moving forward?
1: Well, I think, you know, the, when I came to the U.S. for graduate school, this is, you know, a long time ago, a lot of people ask me, uh, you know, why is the Chinese state so strong? Because, you know, we have this very popular view that the Chinese government can basically do anything. They can dictate how many children, you know, people have, and then they can make people take the vaccine. So we are all very impressed by, what social scientists call state capacity of the Chinese government. And then at the time, I was thinking about, first of all, why the Chinese state was so strong, how the Chinese state became a very strong state. And then the second question, kind of a normative concern that I had was because it is a very strong state, it can do anything. So therefore, as a social scientist, I was thinking about what are some of the mechanisms that can constrain a very strong state, which is, you know, what are some of the social or economic mechanisms that can make the state do something that that is in the benefits of the society of all the citizens in the country. And then when I started my dissertation, that kind of the second question, the normative question, kind of was the motivation to write something about, you know, what constrained a very strong state. And also, you know, this is a state that is not Democratic, you know, this is a non-democratic state. Therefore, you know, the leaders are not voted, not elected by by the people in the country. Therefore, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what are some of the, the non-electoral mechanisms that can really tie the hands of the leaders in this country? And then that was the the original motivation of my dissertation therefore you know so my dissertation was about how economic actors you know how how foreign actors for example how foreign investors uh, when they went to china and then how they use the legal system to constrain the power of the chinese government so that's the the original motivation of my first project and then After I was done with my first project, you know, I I feel was puzzled by this question, you know, why was the Chinese state so strong in the first place? And then that became the motivation of my current project, which is the second book that is, you know, I try to look at Chinese history to look at how the Chinese state came about, you know, so the kind of the birth of the Chinese state, you know, how a strong state was born and then how that strong state endured for such a long time. So those are the questions that, you know, Motivated these two projects.
0: When you think about future research, what are the? I mean, what are the questions in your? You know, when you're in the shower and you're sitting there thinking, well, how the hell is that the case? Are there any really outstanding ones that continue to to puzzle you about continuing practices or or future evolutions of the Chinese state?
1: Yeah, when well, I'm in the shower, I try not to think about research <laughs> questions, you know. But <laughs> But once in a while, you know, uh, you know, the the key question I'm thinking about is, you know, just looking at China for the last, you know, two millennium. And, uh, you know, one question always puzzled me is, you know, we have this regime or this, you know, this country that has such a long civilization, you know, let's say more than 2000 years. And then for this 2000 years, they have a very stable form of government. You know, they're certainly different, you know. For example, in in dynastic China, in contemporary China, we are certainly seeing very different forms of government. But I think the basic structure of the state you know, is very similar in you know, in the last two thousand years. That is, you have a non-democratically elected leader, you have a meritocratic bureaucracy, then you have a society that uh, you know sometimes compete with the state, but sometimes you know most of the times collaborate with the state. So therefore, uh, you know, the puzzle that always interests me is, you know, how come this basic form of government or this basic form of state has been so durable, right? So, so durable for, you know, 2000 years. But then the second dimension of the question is, you know, looking at the the ups and downs of the Chinese state, you know, thinking about, you know, the, the foundation, you know, in the Qin dynasty 2000 years ago, but also the collapse of imperial China in early 20th century, and then the, you know, the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, and then the, you know, the founding of the PRC in the mid 20th century, you know, it always intrigued me to think about, you know, what explains this exceptional durability of the state, but also the ups and downs of the state. That is, you see the foundation of new dynasty, the foundation of new regimes, but also the collapse of the state, but then you know this basic form of the government uh, stayed the same. That is, you know, no matter what happens, you have those dynasties, new regimes, but continually China keep going back to the same form of government. You know, over and over again. So I think that's the fundamental puzzle that has been interesting to me.
0: I'm getting ahead of myself, but I while I'm still thinking of it, I wanted to ask you if you and I well, I guess we'd have to assume we cryogenically froze our brains, but let's pretend, you know, two hundred years from now we're we're on Zoom and we're having a, a conversation, we're returning to this. Do you think we will look at the contemporary CCP under the Xi administration? as a disjuncture in this long story of of relatively stable st- structure and style of Chinese governance? Will this be something new or will this just be part of this longer lineage and story? And I, and I ask that because, of course, we have a very present bias, but one of the consensus that seems to be emerging is just how different Chinese rule is nowadays. Different because technology is enabling new capacities that, that previous rulers, of course, have never dreamed of in terms of enforcing control. But also you were mentioning sort of meritocratic you know, bureaucracies. We seem to be seeing a new evolution in terms of bureaucratic governance with the party replacing traditional you know, state council government uh, bureaucracy. So I'm wondering, are we are we overreacting and seeing a disjuncture in the Xi administration, or is there something new here?
1: Well, first of all, I hope in 2,000 years we are not on Zoom anymore. I'm really tired of Zoom after you know, 18 months of Zoom meetings. Uh, but I, you know, that's a great question, Jude. I think you know one way to think about this. I I do think there are a lot of these junctures, you know, when we think about, you know, the Chinese Communist Revolution and also the new regime, you know, since 1949, you know, the biggest difference, I think, is there's now a party, there's now a modern party, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, which is an organization that we have never seen before in Chinese history. And then this party, as an organization, as a modern party organization, is organizing the elites in a way that Chinese elites were never organized before. So, you know, go into details later, you know, about how the Chinese cities were organized in imperial China. But I think, you know, we are seeing something that is uh, unprecedented in Chinese history. That is, we have this modern party organization that can incentivize, can recruit, and also can organize the life of party members. I think that's very different from Chinese history. But still, you know, I, I think that you know some of the basic, you know, the basic foundations of the regime, you know, to me are very similar to how China was governed a long time ago. And then, you know, it's 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 probably an exaggeration to see that you know the PRC is another dynasty. But for me, it's very helpful to look at PRC as a new dynasty. You know, from this long-term view, that is, you know, we had dynasties, you know, since the Qin dynasty a long time ago, and now we have the ups and downs of dynasties. And then therefore, you know, it's very helpful to think about the PRC as, as the current dynasty we are living in. It is not very accurate, you know. I acknowledge, you know, it's very different from imperial China. But I think from a long-term historical view, I think it's very helpful as a social scientist to analyze contemporary China as one of the new dynasties. And so therefore we can use some of the knowledge you know, the wisdom we gained from Chinese history to understand what's going on in contemporary China.
0: That's a good, segue to now explore the guts of the paper you sent, which actually we were just talking before we started recording, is really a shortened version of a book manuscript which you've just you've just turned in to Princeton University Press, so eagerly look forward to its final publication. I wanted to ask a few level-setting questions here before we really dive into the discussion. And there was a really interesting line you had in the section on, on how this work contributes to the literature. If the Audience would just indulge me for a moment. I'm going to read two sentences from this. You write Most countries have not created a rule based on consent, but are still run by an autocrat. It is time to recognize alternative paths of state development, not as aberrant, but as opportunities to develop a new lens to analyze state building. And it felt like in this, you know, in these two sentences were obviously a summation of the field and where you see it prioritizing or emphasizing certain certain case studies or or certain developments and prioritizing those over some which likely deserve more merit. And indeed, this very much fits with a a reckoning that I think we're having, moving away from a Whiggish expectation that all states are on a linear trajectory towards some sort of, you know, democratic liberal norm, and now understanding the, the plurality of state organization in non-democratic ways is likely an enduring feature. And we're all kind of catching up to understand that. But I wanted to ask you, you know, what was underlying those two sentences? And where, where was the, the field treating non-European state development in a way that is aberrant? And, and what is the impact that that's been having on how we think about and analyze political diversity?
1: Yeah, I think the motivation was really my frustration with The old literature i think in in political science and you know it's it's getting better now but i think the uh, the earlier literature in political science on state building on state development but also on democratization on political changes in general uh, basically is based on what i call a convergence Assumption that is, you know, they assume that every country in the world will become like Denmark, right? There's a, there's a very famous phrase, go to Denmark, and then it's, you know, it was very popular, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, in the so-called modernization theory. But I think the thinking behind the convergence hypothesis is still in a lot of man's among the social scientists that we we assume that, you know, Europe is the future or, you know, is is the model, is the standard, is the benchmark. And then, you know, every country in Africa, for example, in in Asia, in Latin America will someday, you know, in the future, it takes a long time maybe, but someday they will become like Europe. And then uh, in terms of, you know, state building that they assume, for example, representative institutions will emerge in those places and they have strong taxation, you know, monopoly over violence, but also in terms of uh, form of government, you know, for example, democracy, elections, so on and so forth. You know, I was very frustrated uh, when I read the literature. I felt that, uh, you know, first of all, if there was a standard, I think, you know, it should be China now, Europe, you know, for example, because, you know, China started, you know, the form of government or the, you know, the type of state really emerged in China 2000 years ago, much, much earlier than the European standard emerged. So therefore, you know, If there's a standard, I think it should be the Chinese standard, not the European standard. But also, I think the more important point is, you know, we have uh, living under the same form of government in China for thousands of years. And then, you know, even though we assume that we might change in the future, but then taking... The large share of history into account you know we should treat this form of government very seriously not as some outliers right you know this is not an outlier from the standard from the benchmark but this is probably a very stable form of government and then the literature hasn't really treated in that way uh, and then One of the goals in this book is, you know, I'm trying to say that you know we should take it very, very serious because this form of government has been enduring for 2,000 years, uh, you know, until today. And then we should really study it and then think about what are some of the mechanisms that sustain this type of government for such a long time.
0: Just a a, a second level set question is, you know, just briefly, could you you use the word? And obviously, this is in the literature as well. You know, state capacity. Just briefly discuss what is state capacity?
1: Yeah, you know, intuitively, it means that degree to which the state can mobilize the society, right? That's the the short version of it. But then, you know, more concretely, you know, we as social scientists often look at, for example, taxation as one indicator through which the state can mobilize society, because, you know, revenues are so important for the state to fight wars, to, you know, to, to win wars. Therefore, one way we look at state society relations, but also state capacity is the degree to which the state can mobilize financial resources from the society. That is, you know, how much tax the state can collect from the society, you know, from the elites in particular, because you know nobody wants to pay taxes, right? And then to mobilize people to pay taxes, there has to be some agreement between the ruler and then the elites. And then there has to be something the elites can gain from paying taxes. And then the, uh, you know, the idea that the state can really extract money from the elites, you know, require information about how much income people are making, but also about, you know, where people are living, how many people there are, and also the timing of things. So therefore, as a very uh, concrete indicator, we often look at taxation as an indicator of state capacity.
0: Although your paper focuses, or the book focuses primarily on imperial China, there's a lot of comparative work that you're doing to benchmark the development of the Chinese state. And indeed, you start out the paper that you sent me talking about something called the King's Dilemma, which is a Samuel Huntington phrase. And actually, th- sorry, that reminded me, I was going to say, one of the more recent popular works of political science on state building which decentered the West was, of course, Francis Fukuyama's great two-volume on state building, which starts with the Indian state and the Chinese state. So I think recognizing how, if we're trying to think of the Earth states that we should be studying, it's not in Europe, but it's actually farther to, the, farther to the East where we're going to learn about some of the significant and sophisticated developments of, of state capacity. And sorry, my brain went there because, of course, his great teacher was Samuel Huntington. So you start off your paper talking about this one of the many dilemmas that rulers have to face, but you focus on on one specific to open the paper, and that is the King's Dilemma. So I wanted to ask you, what is the King's Dilemma and how did European rulers solve this, this dilemma?
1: So the King's Dilemma is a phrase used in Huntington's book, you know, the political order in changing societies. And, uh, you know, what what he meant at the time in the book was that uh, you know he called it the king's dilemma survival versus success and then the idea was that uh, you know for a lot of rulers in the world you cannot get both you either get survival or get success and when you become really really successful you are also facing a lot of risks so i used the king's dilemma to describe a scenario where you know european kings and queens were facing this trade off between success and survival that is you know for a long time in the medieval era you know for example the kings and the queens were trying to extract resources from the elites to fight wars there are a lot of kingdoms in europe so they have to fight wars and to fight wars they have to you know pay the soldiers and then therefore they have to extract resources from the elites and then when they extract more resources from the elites that made them more successful because they can get more money they can win wars but then that created a problem that is you are taking too much from the elites and then that will create more risks for the kings and the queens. And then therefore, you know, in the medieval, a lot of kings were deposed by the elites. For example, you know, thinking about the Glorious Revolution, Charles was killed by the elites because he taxed too much, right? So I think, you know, the, the scenario was very common in other countries as well. You know, in China, you know, we can think of, you know, various emperors, you know, being assassinated because he took too much, right? I, I tried to start the article with that dilemma that a lot of rulers were facing, that is, they can either be very successful in terms of, extracting resources, or they can be very stable. That is, they can stay in their power for a long time, but they cannot take too much money from the elites.
0: You contrast that with what you called the emperor's, or you mentioned in think, comparative sense, the emperor's dilemma, which is, of course, looking at imperial China. So if I can ask you the same question, uh, state development in imperial China, what was the emperor's dilemma? Uh, how were they interacting with and, and facing challenges from their own elite?
1: Yeah, so the king's dilemma gradually was solved in the 13th century, 14th century because of the emergence of representative institutions. That is, in Europe, gradually the kings and queens started to use representative institutions to get the consent of the elites when they want to tax the elites. Say, for example, after the glorious revolution, uh, you know, the English rulers started to use the parliament to get the agreement from the elites before they taxed them. And then therefore, you know, in the literature, they argue that uh, this type of representative institutions played a very important role in solving the king's dilemma. That is, they lengthen the duration of rulers in Europe. That is, they made the rulers very, very durable, because the elites now can bargain with the kings and queens. They don't have to Kill them, but also at the same time, the representative institutions also empowered the kings and the queens because they enabled the kings and the queens to tax the elites an institutional way. So that's how the king's dilemma was solved in Europe. I made this argument in some of my other works that representative institution didn't emerge in China because of the political geography. You know, China has been unified for for a long time. It was a very big country, so the elites didn't have a lot of bargaining power with it. So the Emperor's dilemma was that uh, you know very similar to the King's dilemma that is the Chinese emperors were also trying to collect a lot of taxes from the elites, but then they were also facing rebellions, risks posed by the elites. and then and then when I talk about the emperor's dilemma in my paper, I mean that there are two different types of elite social structures that can contribute to either the survival of rulers or, the success of rulers, and then uh, so I use the uh, you know the words of star versus bowtie to describe these two types of social structures. So in one scenario, for example, I call this star network where the Chinese elites were organized in a very centralized way. That is, they were connecting with their families, social groups in different localities in the empire, but also in the center, the elites were also connected with each other. I call it a star network, and then in this network is very uh, conducive to state capacity, because when you have a coherent central elites, they have a very strong incentive to strengthen the central state, because they can benefit from a strong central state, because they have families and and social connections are everywhere. So they can benefit from a very strong central government. And in a sense, they have a very strong incentive to building a strong state. And that is... The success of the Chinese state, but then the problem is when you have a very coherent central elites, they can also take collective action to rebel against the ruler. That is, they will pose very severe threats to the stability of the rulers. You know, we we see that, for example, in the Tang Dynasty, where the Tang aristocrats were very coherent, therefore they could take collective actions to kill the, the emperors. That's the dilemma. So the, you know, the, the Chinese emperors at the time had a very strong state capacity. They could tax people very, very strongly. But then at the same time, they also face very severe risks of being assassinated by the elites. In another scenario where I call the bow tie network, where the central elites are not connected with each other. So they're, they're relatively isolated with each other. And then they are, but they have their own, kind of territories. They have their own regions they can connect with. But then in the center, the central elites are not connected with each other. And then I, I call it the bow tie network because it looks like a bow tie. And then in that sense, it's very bad for state capacity because you know in the center the elites only care about local interests because the other families, for example, are from this one county in this one province. So they only care about, you know, diverting central resources to this one locality to make their families stronger to keep the resources in the hands of their families not to strengthen the central state. Uh, so this is very bad for state capacity. So it's bad for the success of the ruler. But then I argue that this type of social structure of the elites is very good for the survival of the ruler because you know they are disconnected. So say for example, in the center, there are elites, but then they're not connected with each other. So it's very hard for them to rebel against the ruler because it's you know, very costly for them to coordinate on rebellions. And then so in this scenario, you know. Under a bowtie network, I argue that you know, it's good for the survival of the ruler, but really bad for state capacity.
0: Can I ask what exerts pressure on the shape of that elite network? In other words, how does a star network, uh, star-shaped network take form in the first place, or vice versa, how does a bowtie network take form in the first place? Is this a pull factor where you've got the leader orchestrating the structure of the elite network such that he or she prefers success over... I guess, if this is possible, over survival? Or are there kind of exogenous, you know, environmental factors? And then related to that, you wrote in the paper that for a good stretch of time in medieval China, you had this, this relatively stable star-shaped network, which, as you just mentioned, boosted state capacity. But this gave way around the ninth century and morphed to become a bow-type-shaped network. So what created that disjuncture in the shape of the network?
1: In the book, you know, uh, so I call the social structure of the elite social terrain, you know, this is kind of, you know, how how the elites were organized socially. And then, you know, in the book, I call it, you know, the state can make social terrain and then the, the social terrain can make the state, you know, to paraphrase Charles Tilly. And then the idea is that it's both. The influence comes from both directions that is in the ruler can take some opportunity you know when when there are opportunities um, the ruler will take the opportunity to reshape the structure of the elites and then once the structure of the elites is shaped the social terrain or the social structure of the elites can shape the state it's comes both ways and then in the Chinese context so i talk about you know what happened for example in the 9th century this is you know the end of the tang dynasty the beginning of the song dynasty and what happened there was you know, in the first place there was a very important climate change event in the in the late 9th century china had some of the coldest years you know, in the last 2000 years. And then those coldest years produced famine conditions in China, and in which produce, you know, rebellions. And then one of the biggest rebellions at the time was the Huang Chao rebellion. Huang Chao was a salt merchant. So he led thousands of rebels, and then they conquered the capitals of the Tang dynasty at the time, which was Luoyang and also Chang'an. And then at the time, all the Tang elites, you know, the Tang aristocrats were living in the capitals, you know, in Chang'an, Luoyang, also in the corridor, between these two cities. Then when the Huang Chao rebels went in, they killed all the families, so they killed all the aristocratic families in the Tang Dynasty, which destroyed what they call the star network. So this is the end of the star network. But then, you know, how they transitioned to the bowtie network, you know, is a longer story. That is so for you know, for quite some time, there was you know, this power vacuum in China. You know, the, there were 200 families, you know, were killed during the Huang Chao Rebellion, So between the Tang and Song, there was this power vacuum. But gradually, in the beginning of the Song Dynasty, the Song Emperor started to use a new mechanism to choose elites. That is, you know, without the aristocratic families, they had to come up with a new way to choose the bureaucrats. And then what they came up with was to continue a tradition but a very, you know, very small tradition started in the Sui Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty, the civil service examination system. So they you know, the, the rulers in Sui and Tang started to use it, but not very systematically. Only a very small percentage of the bureaucrats were recruited through the examinations. So starting in the Song Dynasty, the emperor really started to systematically rely on the civil service examinations to choose bureaucrats. And then what happened after this change was that the, the type of people that were chosen by this recruitment mechanism changed in the Song Dynasty. That is, uh, you know, once people need to take the exams to become bureaucrats, it really favored the sons and grandsons of the local landlord families, you know, the local gentry that we call them. Because those people had land, so they can use the land income to invest in the education of their children. And then their sons and grandsons can take the examination systems and then Become bureaucrats. But then the type of elites that started to flow into the central government become very different from the Tang elites. That is, uh, you know, starting from the Song dynasty, we start to see the flow of local elites flowing into the central government. That is, you know, people have local ties, people have, you know, marriage ties, you know, social ties with the local people. That is, you know, for example, I show in the book that uh, in terms of marriages, starting in the Song Dynasty, you start to see that most of the people who work in the central government, you know, the central bureaucrats, their marriages are very, very localized. That is, they tend to marry, you know, the daughters of their neighbors, basically. And then that dramatically changed the incentive of the elites, because once your social relations are very local, you tend to care about your local interests, your families, for example, your your marriage networks, your your in-laws, for example, your your properties in your localities, you don't care about the central government anymore. So therefore, the change of the elites also led to a dramatic change in their policy preferences starting in the Song Dynasty.
0: The fruits of this change in the terrain of, of elite networks is shown very strikingly on a graph that you have that charts the probability of Uh, ruler disposal by elites over the course of 2,000 years. And of course, this is an audio podcast, uh, but folks can go out and and buy the book when it's out to see it. But it shows this dramatic, dramatic and enduring decline in that probability starting around the Song Dynasty and continuing until the very end of the Qing Dynasty. And I suppose that actually sets up a really good transition to just a final few questions on... You know, bringing this up to the present, you've laid out this really important tension between success and state capacity, the state's ability to effectively mobilize, and the survivability of of the ruler or the ruler's sense of security and power. Of course, when I think about contemporary China, one of the things that is so striking about the past ten years or so has been what appears to be a significant shape reorientation of elite networks in China and indeed seeing examples of where even at a kind of a technocratic level, folks like Cai Chi, who's the, you know, party secretary of Beijing, was was moved up because of his relationship with Xi Jinping, not because he had, you know, in a structured way moved up the ladder. And so I wonder, as you think about uh, shapes of elite networks, do you have any views on how we might be seeing a reshaping of elite networks today. And, and more importantly, I think this tension that you describe between capacity and security of the ruler, how does this really important thesis, which you've explored historically in Imperial China, how does that inform how we should be thinking about current and future evolutions of Chinese governance?
1: One thing always interests me is, you know, for example, the current anti-corruption campaign that is going on in China. And then, you know, we have done a lot of studies on this and then, you know, so why it happened, you know, the effects of this. And then one of the more popular arguments about why Xi Jinping has been carrying out the anti-corruption campaign is that he tries to centralize the Chinese bureaucracy by eliminating factions, right? So and then, you know, we all know that there are factions within the Chinese Communist Party is a party, but then there are factions Within the party, the factions might be based on, you know, social ties, educational ties, but also on policy preferences, you know, whatever reason, but but there are factions within the party. That argument always puzzles me because, you know, from my experience of studying imperial China was that factions were always beneficial for the ruler, you know, as long as the ruler can sit above the factions, you know, the, so the way the Chinese rulers in the past, in, in, in all the dynasties in, in the last 2000 years, uh, one really smart strategy they have been using in lengthening their rule was to play the factions against each other, right? So they actually, they, in, they intentionally created factions. So therefore the elites can fight with each other, not with the ruler, playing the factions against each other or using or taking advantage of the cleavages among the elites has been really one of the most important mechanisms to keep the Chinese polity stable. You know, it's not, court politics was not very stable. It was, you know, a lot of things going on in the court. But then, you know, in the long term, when we look at ruler duration, uh, it was very, very long. And also, it's actually longer than European kings and queens. Uh, The Chinese emperors could stay in power, you know, 20-something years, uh, you know, for a long time. That always uh, taught me something about, you know, how rulers should rule when they don't have institutions, right? You know, we, we still don't have very strong institutions in contemporary China. So therefore, you know, when people say, you know, Xi Jinping is trying to eliminate factions, <laughs> I'm always very puzzled because it seems to me that it's not very rational for a ruler to eliminate factions because once you eliminate factions, elites will turn to the ruler for, for troubles, right? They will not turn to each other when they have troubles. And then I think that's a very, a very bad scenario for the ruler in China. So I think if there's one thing that I, you know, I learned from Chinese emperors, that is, you know, you actually want factions. You want, you want the elites to fight with each other, not with you, but with themselves.
0: And any final thoughts on state capacity under the party state right now? This is an issue of great speculation, and I think we don't quite know what the fruits of of Xi Jinping's focus on governance are. I'm not sure we quite have enough data points to precisely understand how many of the evolutions of governance that have occurred since 2012, how those are going to materially impact the state's ability to... To mobilize, it strikes me that looking at COVID 19 is a really great case study because it seems in the early phase we saw some of the deficiencies of the party state that were then overcome by the great, extraordinary mobilizational capacity that the party state has, especially when the top leader. Is, uh, is focused, it strikes me that under C we have, I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, but we have this sort of eye of Sauron problem that when Sauron is looking at something, the state moves, right? It really moves. When the leader shifts their focus to something else, that thing that they were just looking at, all the cadres begin ignoring it. They begin putting their attention elsewhere. And so that just leads to this really intense mobilization on a given issue or topic followed by extreme laxity as Xi Jinping turns his turns his focus elsewhere but i wanted to get your kind of concluding thoughts on uh, state capacity under the Xi administration current or looking forward are there any concerns or tensions that you see emerging in the system because of some of the reforms that he has made to the structure and substance of governance
1: i'm really glad you brought up covid-19 i think it's a great great contemporary example, because, you know, what we are seeing in China now, you know, we see a great success, right? A great success of the state's control of COVID-19 in terms of state monitoring, you know, containing the virus. And also, you know, what really strikes me or impressed me is the degree to which the state is mobilizing society to help the state implement some of the COVID nineteen related policies, you know, for example, monitoring the neighborhood, you know, mobilizing people to get the vaccines, you know, things like that. And then, you know, I see a lot of parallel in Chinese history. You know, certainly there's a revolutionary legacy that, you know, the you know, the campaign style Policy implementation that the Chinese Communist Party started during the revolutionary era. Start, you know, certainly we see some of that, but also I see a lot of parallel from Imperial China as well. That is, you know, in late Imperial period, you know, one of the main reasons for the Chinese dynasties to last you know, for a long time. For example, you know, the Song Dynasty, the Ming Dynasty, the Qing Dynasty, they, they each lasted for almost three hundred years. You know, longer than the United States has existed. And then, you know, one of the key mechanisms for those dynasties to last for a long time is this collaboration between the state and society. So at that time was the local families, because there were a lot of you know local lineage groups, they were helping the state implement the policy. For example, they were taking care of local public goods, you know, the dikes, the bridges, the roads. They were funded and uh, taken care of by the local families. They were, you know, sanctioned by the state. The state supported those projects, but then they were paid by the local families. So we see a lot of collaboration between society and the state in late imperial China. And then you know we, we are still seeing some of that today. The families are gone, right? So we, we no longer have those big lineage groups in China because of the the violence during the war era. But then, you know, we still see a lot of local communities, you know, the neighborhood communities, you know, the, the local societies, community groups, and then they are playing a very important role in collaborating with the state in terms of monitoring the population, you know, helping people get vaccinated. So I think, you know, if there's one lesson that I, you know, I learned from from Imperial China that can really teach about, about governance in contemporary China, I think is the importance of state society collaboration or, the, you know, the mobilization of the society. I think it's very important in sustaining this type
0: of rule. You have I've, I've taken way more than thirty minutes of your time for the podcast, so I, I really want to thank you for your time. And I also I'm, I'm really looking forward to the final book coming out. I hope this is one of those books that Princeton will price at twenty nine ninety nine and not and not two hundred and fifty dollars <laughs> or yeah, what some right. of these are. But I mean I think this is extraordinarily important work and the contribution of thinking beyond just an amorphous structure of the elite to understanding how the precise pattern and orientation of those elite networks can can have implications for the substance and style of rule is really important. So thank you very much. And, and I look forward to, to seeing you in person, hopefully sometime soon.
1: Thanks, Jude. Yeah, yeah, it's really fun to talk about these ideas with you. And also, I, I really look forward to seeing you in person in the near future. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org
0: slash podcasts to see our full catalog